I would encourage you as you are seated to grab your Bibles and turn them to the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel, where we are going to continue to walk with our Savior through the final week of his earthly life until his crucifixion and ultimately the celebration of his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. As you are turning your Bibles in Mark 13 this morning, I want to ask us a question. It's a question that comes right out of the text, right out of this discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples. The question is simply this, how do we know that God is with us? How do you know that? Probably every Christian can identify with going through um, a season, at least a short season, and for many of us, a quite long season, where we may not be sure whether God is with us or God has abandoned us. And how do I determine that in that moment, whether God is with me or whether he's abandoned me? Uh, Is it just my sense, um, my feelings? Uh, Sometimes I have felt, perhaps you have too, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, really, you might almost say felt God's presence. You just, you have the strong sense of his love or his presence. And then there's these other times where it kind of seems like I'm, I'm praying to God and my prayers are sort of hitting the proverbial ceiling and falling dead on the floor. It's like God just doesn't seem like he's there. He's not listening. Is he? Is he not? How do I tell? Can I rely on that feeling of whether God is with me? Or perhaps, very commonly, uh, I relate to this personally, I I can determine whether God is with me based on the circumstances of my life. Things seem to be going well. Perhaps my prayers are being answered. I'm asking God for certain things, and those things are happening. I'm asking God for health or for a job or a new house, and, and those things work out. And I say, God is blessing me. Therefore, God is with me, and I feel that very strongly. But then, of course, there's those times where that doesn't happen even sometimes despite my prayers. God doesn't give me that job. He doesn't save that marriage. He doesn't uh, heal me from that illness. Has he abandoned me? Maybe my circumstances are an indicator of whether or not God is with me. And for some of us, it's even larger um, national or, or, or even international events. Uh, for some, it's politics. If the right people, in my judgment, are getting elected and the right measures and laws, in my judgment, are getting passed and the culture is generally agreeing with things that I think are scriptural, that's a sign that God is with us. But if those things are not happening, if the wrong people are elected or, or if the culture is turning its back on, on things that God talks about in the Bible, then, then maybe that's a sign that he's no longer with us. How do you determine that? How do we know whether God is with us? Well, friends, God has given us an immovable and unshakable sign that he is with his people. And that's the subject of today's sermon from Mark chapter 13. You see, in the Bible, God had always provided, throughout the Old Testament era, he had always provided signs to his people that he is with them. And and two signs really dominate the Old Testament narrative. The first sign was God's word itself, uh, God's message, in other words. The Old Testament Israelites were unique and alone amongst all the peoples who lived in the world at that time because God had spoken directly to them. And he had not spoken directly to any other people group. He wrote down his word. They called it the Torah, the law of Moses, or what we now call the first five books of the Bible. And God gave that to them. 
And so they knew God was with them. But he also gave them another thing. He gave them the temple. He gave them the temple, the Old Testament Jewish temple. It was a building. It was the place where God's presence dwelt in a special way. And as long as the ancient Israelites had the Torah and the temple, they could know that no matter how bad or good things were going in their personal lives, or no matter how bad or good things were going for them as a nation, God is with us because there's the temple. And that's where God's presence dwells. It's very difficult to to overstate the importance of the Old Testament temple to the Jews because the temple is the subject of Mark chapter 13. And it comes in the context of centuries of Jewish living and learning and worshiping. For them, the temple is where God's presence was. And we've already said that. If you know your Old Testament, you're familiar with this idea that, that the presence of God literally and physically dwelt in a very special way inside the temple. In the older days, it was in the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept in the temple. The temple was the house of God. That's where God's presence was in a very special way. The temple, therefore, was also where they would go to meet with God. You want to be in God's presence, you want to address God, you want to connect with God, you go to the temple. The temple is where the priests are who can be your intermediaries between you and God. And the temple was also where sacrifices were made, which atoned for the sins of the people. And the Old Testament taught very clearly that all human beings are sinners and God is perfectly holy and he cannot be holy and tolerate the presence of sin. So our sin inseparably separates us from God, but the temple was the place where you could go where a sacrifice, usually an animal sacrifice, was made, and that sacrifice was said to cover or atone for your sins so that you could actually be God's people, you could be in God's presence. And ultimately for them, the temple was the sign that God is with them. God is with them, and that gave them tremendous hope in the short run, the short term, Like, no matter how, again, good or bad their personal lives were going at any given time, or even nationally, if it was going well for them, or it was going very poorly for them, even in the darkest times, they could look at the temple and know God is still with us. The house of God is still with us, and his presence is still there. And that gave them hope to get through the difficult times of life. But it ultimately resulted not only in a short-term hope for Old Testament Jews, the temple also gave them an unshakable long-term hope hope. That is, it gave them the confidence to know that even if this difficult spell of my life isn't just a spell, even if it's like my whole life, if I never break the bonds of poverty, if if I never get rid of my disease, if my life is awful and I even die in an awful life, at the end of the age, I know that it will go well with me because God's presence is with us. We're his people. The temple was a potent and powerful sign that God was with them. And because the temple is the central element of our narrative this morning, it's important to understand it. Mark chapter 13 opens by saying that as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Why the awe? The Jewish temple had been around for 1,500 years. Why is he so in awe of it? Well, the truth is this particular temple hadn't been around for 1,500 years. There were actually four different temples, as it were, throughout Israel's history. And the first one was actually pretty, um, pretty modest. 
it was pretty modest. It was essentially a grand and, and, and grandiose uh, tent. And that was very suitable to ancient Israel. This was made in the time of, of Moses. And that was very suitable to the era in which Israel was a nomadic people. They were always on the move. And so this whole tent structure with its kind of surrounding um, uh, barrier wall could be broken down and packed up and moved and then erected again at the next place where they were going to camp. This was their a place where they went to worship and meet with God. And you can see the rectangles in the upper right-hand corner of this picture. Uh, the bottom one is a footprint of the temple. The top one is the size of a modern American football field. So that gives you an idea of its scale, you know, whatever, 52 yards or whatever it is wide and 100 yards long. So you can see the temple is about the quarter of the size of a football field. It really wasn't that big. It was a very humble structure in many ways. Now, hundreds of years later, the first real temple was built by King Solomon on Mount Zion, this current temple mount today in Jerusalem. He built the first permanent temple structure, which was a huge step up from that first tabernacle. It was a permanent structure. It was grand for its day, and it stood as Israel's temple and place of worship for over 400 years. But as grand and glorious and permanent as it was, it was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in 587 B.C. when they invaded and conquered Israel. Now, the third temple we don't actually have a picture of because it was really a reconstruction of Solomon's temple. And you can read about that in Old Testament books like the book of Ezra, where after that they had been conquered and some of their exiles had been deported, some of them were allowed to return to Jerusalem and kind of rebuild the temple that had been gutted. And they did, although it was nowhere near as grand and glorious as it was in Solomon's day. It was a much more humble structure, but it nevertheless stood for another 500 years as Israel's temple until we arrive at the temple that was built that was around in Jesus' day. About 20 years before Jesus was born, Herod rebuilt Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And you can see a side-by-side -side comparison here between the two. The one on the right, clearly, Herod's temple. It utterly dwarfed the temple that was Solomon's temple in Israel's glory days. The old temple didn't hold a candle to the new one. He took the literal building and blew it out. He blew it back. He blew it up. The building itself was many, many times the size of the original temple, covered with gold, ornate and gorgeous. And as you can see, he actually expanded the whole temple complex significantly. Once again, our little rectangles there on the bottom left. The top one was Solomon's temple. The middle one is Herod's temple. It's like four times the size. And that bottom rectangle is an American football field. So you can see Herod's temple, the temple, this was the temple in Jesus' day. It was a football field and a half long and roughly a football field wide. This was a massive complex. He built this in roughly two years, about 20 years before Jesus was born, but Herod didn't stop there. He undertook a massive reconstruction project of the entire temple mount, and he expanded it out there just wasn't enough room for his grand vision. So he built retaining walls and filled it in and expanded the Temple Mount. Those retaining walls still stand today, 2,000 years later. It was a massive expansion to the site, and it took some 80 to 85 years to complete, which, by the way, means it was still under construction in Jesus' day. Uh, the temple itself had been completed, but this massive temple courtyard was still under construction. And by the way, when we talked like a, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, about Jesus kicking money changers out of the temple courtyard, it's a reference to that massive plaza that surrounded the temple with all those colonnades and walkways that were in it. That's where they were at. 
The Temple Mount site is huge. If you've not been to Jerusalem, most of us probably haven't, uh, it encompasses roughly 35 acres. Huge place. This is an aerial shot of the Temple Mount today. Uh, of course, that's not the Jewish temple in the middle of it uh, because the Temple Mount in Jerusalem has been under uh, Islamic control for quite some time. The shrine that is in the middle of it, roughly where the Jewish temple stood back in the first century, is a, a Muslim shrine called the Dome of the Rock that was built in the seventh century. It's been there ever since. But the reason I show you this picture is you can see very clearly the almost rectangular outline of the temple site. That is the walls that Herod built in the first century. They are still there. And you get a bit of a sense. You can see, even in modern Jerusalem, the site just dwarfs the city. Uh, there's nothing that compares to it. And you can see this little road down on the bottom of the picture running through the Kidron Valley. I don't know if you can tell from where you're sitting, but my little pointer or laser pointer is weak. Way down the bottom right corner on the road, there's a little white speck. That's a car. So just to give you a sense, if you've never been there, and if you can't see it, it makes the point even more, Right? That's the car, and that's the comparison to the site. It was a massive site. In fact, in the first century, archaeologists tell us, it was the largest construction site in the entire world. Even larger than the big buildings and coliseums that were building, being built in Rome. They didn't expand 35-acre construction sites. It was truly one of the wonders of the ancient world. This is an artist's rendering of what that temple complex probably looked like set against Jerusalem. As you can see, it just dominated the Jerusalem skyline. There was nothing else like it in Jerusalem. There was nothing else like it anywhere. And so when these disciples finally get to Jerusalem, they're walking around going, dude. I don't know what the Hebrew word is for that. But whatever it is, I'm sure they were saying it, right? I mean, if you've ever been to, you know, like a, a European cathedral or, or something like that where you just walk into a building and it takes your breath away, that's what's happening here in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. This was truly one of the wonders of the ancient world. However, almost 85 years in the making, the temple's glory was very short-lived. It only stood once it was completed for about six or seven years before the Romans moved in and utterly annihilated it. What happened, and I'm, I'm kind of a history geek, so I'm resisting the temptation to dive into this, but some of the, this knowledge of history will help us as we get into Mark chapter 13. Super brief. What happened is in the year 66 AD, there was a Jewish revolt against Roman control. It was an uprising, and that brought the wrath of Rome down on Jerusalem. Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem. There was a, the famous Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 70 AD. Um, they besieged the city. Uh, massive death via disease and starvation was common, as well as fighting. Um, when the Roman armies finally breached the city walls, they massacred virtually everyone indiscriminately who was still left alive. One ancient historian, a guy by the name of Josephus, estimates that over a million Jews were killed in those four years. And the Romans, significant to our passage this morning, profaned the temple. They brought their Roman standards, the big Roman golden eagle that they would always carry in front of their armies, and they set those standards up inside the Jewish temple as a way to desecrate the temple and, and, and just kind of... Um, defile the Jewish religion and the Jewish temple. They offered sacrifices to Titus, who was the Roman general who was leading uh, the, the conquest of Jerusalem, and they offered sacrifices to the Caesar and other Roman gods. This was the height of blasphemy 
in the Jewish mind. Sacrifices being offered to pagan gods in the very temple, the house of God Almighty himself. And after they got done profaning the temple to prove that they were the victors and the Jews were conquered, they burned the temple and they burned every building on the temple mount. And after everything that was flammable had been consumed by the flames, all that was left was the stones and they systematically dismantled every building on the Temple Mount, all the way down to its very foundations to prove that they had won and they had put down the uprising. They utterly demolished the magnificent temple. It it was a destruction so thorough that by the end of the year 70 AD, the Jewish temple simply ceased to exist. And it has not existed since throughout human history. Now, the setting of Mark chapter 13 is about 37 years before that. The temple is almost finished and it's still one of the wonders of the ancient world, but Jesus says something phenomenal in verse two. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see all these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. Now, if you've been with us in our series through Mark's gospel so far, we've been talking about how Jesus was rejecting the Jewish religion and God was rejecting even the temple as a part of the Jewish religion. Well, this is kind of putting that to its finality, right? He's saying not only is God rejecting it, it is going to be destroyed as the announcement and the fulfillment of God's judgment on his own people. Now, after he said that, they walk across the Kidron Valley and they sit on the neighboring Mount of Olives, which was actually higher than Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, and so it afforded a great view of the temple out there across the valley. Their view might have looked a little bit like this, as they're looking out on the magnificent temple and it's just dominating the Jerusalem skyline. And they say to him, as they're sitting there and looking out at this massive temple, they say to him in verse 3, they sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus began to answer their questions. Now, just before we quickly walk through the text of chapter 13 and then really draw some conclusions about how it impacts even us today, we need to mention a couple things just before we dive in. First of all, everything Jesus is going to say here in chapter 13 is an answer to these questions that the disciples asked him. And the question is, When is the temple going to be destroyed? And then a follow-up question, are there going to be any signs of that destruction right before it happens? He's just told them something unimaginable would happen. It's like the Titanic was unsinkable until it sank, right? Well, the temple is massive. It's indestructible. And he just said, yeah, but it's going to be destroyed. And they're shocked. They're shocked. And so they ask him, when is that going to happen? what, What is going on? Now, It's important to remember that because Christians have had two major, good Bible-believing, solid evangelical Christians have had two major approaches to understanding what what we're about to read from Jesus here. Uh, The first is to understand, he's he's clearly prophesying about the future, things that are going to happen in the future from his vantage point in AD 33. So one way that Christians have understood it is that everything he says refers to essentially the second coming of Christ at the end of the age which hasn't happened yet, so that means the things that he's saying in chapter 13 are still future from our point of view here in the 21st century. Now, the other way that Christians have understood this is to recognize that everything he's talking about happened in the first century, 
It was future from his point of view, but it's past from our point of view. And of course, there's a lot of intermediary positions in, the, in between, and we're not going to get into all those. But I want to just set that out at the beginning. Jesus is either talking in this chapter about things that from our perspective are in the past or things that from our perspective are in the future. And I only lay that out to say um, it's an issue that Christians are free to disagree on because the good news is the point of the passage comes out the same either way. So this is one of those like secondary issues that Christians can discuss and debate and and you're not denying any essentials of the faith either way. Now, having said that, I want to be very clear from up front. I'm approaching it from the first point of view that everything in this chapter is already ancient history from our standpoint. And I want to say that because I suspect I might have just gotten myself fired. (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding about that. At least I hope. But... um, But I say that because I know a lot of us have actually been taught from this passage and its parallel in Matthew 24 that these events are yet future. And so that may sound a little shocking. So just hold on to your thoughts and I'll explain as we go, okay? Now, let's just look at this passage briefly. What does Jesus say in response to these questions? When will the temple be destroyed and will there be any signs? Well, he says, as he's looking out at this temple, first of all, there's gonna be some preliminary signs. Verses five through 13. Um, He says there's gonna be things like false messiahs, Um, People claiming to be him, but they're not him. Um, There'll be wars. There'll be an increase of things like earthquakes and famines. Nation, he says in verse 8, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And at the end of verse 8, he says, these are but the beginning of birth pains. In other words, he's very clear. When those things are on the increase, that doesn't mean the temple's about to be destroyed. It just means that things are warming up and you can see where they're going. Okay, The seasons are starting to change. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 13, and he says one of the other signs is that faithful disciples of Jesus, including the guys he was talking to right then and there, are going to be hated and betrayed, even by loved ones, and persecuted by religious authorities. Which happened, by the way, in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that ran the temple complex, among other things, and they were uh, beaten and imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Jesus says, when those things happen, you know where history is headed. Now, we're not there yet, but you know where history is headed. The Jewish people are rejecting me, they're rejecting my followers, and God is rejecting the temple and he is setting up Jesus Christ and the gospel as the way to fulfill all his promises. Now, those are preliminary signs. He also says there are some imminent signs. He says, now, later on, there's going to be one big sign, and when you see this sign, that's your cue that it's time to get the heck out of Dodge if you're still around. I mean, literally is what he says. When this sign comes, he says... um, Verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down and enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And, you know, he says, oh, if women are nursing or pregnant, or if it's in wintertime where the roads are muddy and it's harder to travel, he says, pray that it won't be then. Because if you're in Jerusalem and you see this imminent sign, you need to get out of there as fast as possible. Because the temple's going down, the city's going down, and everybody who's left in it is probably going down pretty ominous. So what's the sign? The sign is, verse 14, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The sign is the abomination of desolation. That's your sign to get get out of Dodge. Now, abomination of desolation, what in the world is that? That's a funny sounding term to our 21st century ears. But it would not have been a funny-sounding term to first-century Jewish ears. 
because it's a term that is drawn right out of the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel. Jesus is quoting where God had said multiple times in Daniel, someday there will be this abomination of desolation and that is going to be my judgment. That is going to be my judgment. Well, Jesus picks up on that theme and he says he's applying it to their question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? He says the abomination of desolation is going to happen now. Abomination simply means something that is utterly reprehensible to God and his people. That, that's what an abomination is. You know, like disgust isn't even a strong enough word. If something is an abomination, it's just like the worst, most offensive thing you can imagine for God and for his people. But the abomination of or that leads to desolation says that there will be something that is abominable to God and his people, but it will result in tremendous catastrophic destruction. That's what desolation means. It's, it's what, what's left over after everything has been wiped out. Like you've, some of you have seen the pictures of the eruption of, of Mount St. Helens and what big chunks of southwest Washington looked like after that. It was just desolate. Everything was dead and burned and covered in ash. He says there will be an abomination that leads to desolation and it has something to do with standing where it ought not to be. So the question is, what is this abomination of desolation? Well, most Bible scholars are pretty clear that the Roman desecration of the temple in the year AD 70, the subsequent slaughter of over a million Jews in some of the most horrific conditions imaginable, and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem itself fits this bill pretty nicely. Verses 22 and 23, he says, even when these things are getting ready to happen, there will be people who claim false Christs and false prophets will arise. They will claim that God is still with us and he will save us, but he says, don't listen to them, listen to me. Judgment is coming, the temple will be torn down. Now this is where the passage gets really interesting. Because in verses 24 to 27, he goes on and he talks in these great cosmological terms about the judgment of God. He says, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And we don't have enough time to go into all the details of what's going on here, but, but it sure sounds a lot like he's talking about literal cosmic judgment. And since the sun didn't quit shining in A.D. 70, and the stars didn't quit blinking in A.D. 70, obviously these things didn't happen then. And that's what leads to a lot of Christians to say that, well, some of the judgment may have happened in the first century, but some of it is still yet to come. I think what's actually happening here is that Jesus is using what Bible scholars call prophetic idiom, which is a fancy way of saying, that's how the Old Testament prophets used to talk, Okay? This is Bible language. This is prophet, Old Testament prophet language for when God judges a nation, a political nation state or a people group. Uh, I've got up there on the screen Isaiah 13.10. It's just one of many examples. If we had more time, I could probably give you about a dozen of these. Here's just one. Let me read it. This is God prophesying judgment on Babylon, the empire that destroyed Solomon's temple. And he says, I'll back up one verse, uh, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, uh, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a desolation and to destroy its sinners from the earth. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. What is he talking about? He's talking about the end of the Babylonian Empire. 
Not the end of the universe, but that's the language of Old Testament prophets. They use cosmological language, and Jesus is seizing on that same imagery to talk about God's judgment, not of Babylon, but of Israel. It's language with which his disciples would have been familiar. What's more, when he says in verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory, many of us think, as I did for many, many years, that that's clearly a reference to the second coming of Christ, right? Jesus returns to the earth as the universe's conquering king, and that's what he's talking about here. And that clearly didn't happen in 70 AD either, and so this must yet be a future event. But actually, I don't think he's talking about the second coming of Christ, because when he says the Son of Man comes in the clouds, he's quoting directly, once again, from the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. Let me just quickly read that for you. This is Daniel, several hundred years before Jesus, receiving a prophetic vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, that's where the title comes from, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and he was presented before him, and to him the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all the peoples, nations, and languages of the world should serve him. Jesus is quoting, for guys that would have understood this, Daniel's prophecy. And when the Son of Man comes in the clouds, it's actually not Jesus coming to earth, it's Jesus coming into the throne room of heaven to be vindicated as the universe's king. And he says that's going to happen, and the sign that it happens will be the destruction of the temple. As a matter of fact, um, in Matthew's parallel passage, he records the words that they will see the sign of the Son of Man coming. And in Mark's record, he leaves out the word sign, but clearly they're recording the same conversation. I take it he meant it in the same way. So not a picture of Jesus in the sky, but the sign that Jesus has been vindicated in heaven. And what's that sign? The destruction of the temple. Now, if you're not convinced yet, let's move one more paragraph. Verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes... uh, becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that the summer is near, so also when you see all these things taking place, you know that it, some of our Bibles have translated that word he, but it's it's just an art, it's a a pronoun that's that's gender neutral, it could mean he or it. You know that he or it is standing, is near, is at the very gates. And truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place place. Now, that seems pretty clear. Jesus is saying, everything I've been talking about is going to happen before this generation dies out, meaning within a few decades of the day that he was speaking at most. And so those of us who want to see verses 24 to 27 and all that cosmological language as being about the future second coming of Christ have a really tough time explaining what Jesus meant in verse 30. In fairness, there are explanations. Um, They are legitimate. Many very good Bible scholars believe he was still talking about the future. Um, I recognize that. I respect that. I just find them completely unconvincing. Because there's a scriptural principle that we all use that says you let the clear interpret the unclear. And when Jesus clearly says everything I'm talking about is going to happen in a generation, that's pretty clear. And when he's talking about cosmological events that could be prophetic idiom or they might be literal and it might be the end of the world and we're not really sure, that's a little less clear. 
So I'm much more comfortable hearing Jesus say, look, I'm talking about things that are going to happen within the next few decades. Now, whether you agree with me or not, that's fine. We can move on and still be friends. I love you even though you're wrong. I'm just, I'm just, just kidding, just kidding. Okay, here's the point. Either way you read this passage, the point is the same. Jesus says to them, be alert. Be alert. That's the whole rest of the passage, verses 32 down to 37. Draith read it for us earlier. He says it's like the landowner, and he goes away, and he leaves his servants in charge, and they don't know when he's coming back, so they better be alert. They better be watching. He says these things could be happening at any time, guys, so be alert. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week. It's not going to happen next year. And after I'm dead and gone and risen and gone to heaven, you might get settled in thinking that, well, there's just a new normal. He says there is not a new normal. These things are coming, and so you be alert, and you pay attention. It's going to get worse for you before it gets better. And he says, I don't want you to be surprised. That's why I'm telling you all this stuff now. As they got hauled off in front of those councils and beaten for preaching the gospel, they weren't surprised because Jesus had prepared them for it. And he says in that moment, I don't want you to think I've left you. Don't think when the temple is destroyed by the Romans that God has abandoned you. Which brings us back to our question that we started this morning with. How do you know God is with us? Well, for the Old Testament Jews, the temple was such a strong side and God is with them. And so if under God's judgment, the very temple is wiped off the face of the earth, then how am I supposed to know whether God is with me? And Jesus tells them, you trust my words. Jesus gives them an unmistakable sign that is not only as good as the temple, it's actually better. And you know what that sign is? That sign is Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus himself. The existence of the temple is one of the major themes that runs all throughout the Bible, and that theme, like all biblical themes, culminates and climaxes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no temple anymore because according to Jesus, we don't need a temple anymore. The Bible teaches over and over again that Jesus Christ himself is the true and greater temple. That means he fulfills everything that the temple used to but never could ultimately and he fulfills it ultimately oh again if i had an hour i could walk you through a dozen passages of scripture i don't have that kind of time so let me just read you one as an example this is from the new testament book of hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 22 it says therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places That's a reference to the temple. That was the innermost part of the temple that sinful people couldn't go because that's where the presence of God was. He's now saying we can enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus, a reference to the temple sacrifices that have been replaced by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Since we have confidence by the new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, you see what the Bible is doing there? The innermost holy place of the temple was separated from the outer places by this huge thick curtain or veil. And he is saying that temple veil is now the body of Jesus. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the way into God's presence. And it's the sacrifice of Jesus that opens up for us a way to be with God and to know that God is with us. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. 
which means that everything the temple was for an Old Testament Jew, Jesus is for you and I today and more. Jesus is now where God's presence is. Not a building. They had to go to a building to get God's special presence, but the presence of God is fully manifest in his Son. God Almighty made human flesh in Jesus Christ. You want to go be with, Jesus, with God? Then you go find Jesus. Jesus is now where you go to meet with God. We don't go to a building. God's presence is here with us in this church building, but he is also with us when we leave this church building just as strongly. He doesn't exist in this building. The walls are not sanctified in any special way because his presence is not limited to a building. His presence is with Jesus, and so you want to meet with God, you go to Jesus. And whether you're with God's people on a Sunday morning worshiping Jesus as we are doing this very hour, or whether you are alone reading your Bible and pouring your heart out to Jesus, you go to him to meet with God Almighty. And you know what? You can do that because Jesus is where the ultimate sacrifice was made that takes care of our sin problem. I wish I had time to go back and read you all of Hebrews chapter 8. And chapter 9, before chapter 10, which I just read, and I don't have time, so you need to do that on your own. The sacrifice that Jesus made is so much better because all the old animal sacrifices never actually took care of sin. It was just a symbol. It was an act. It was a sign of what was to come. Well, Jesus is what was to come. He sacrificed himself on the cross, and his spilled blood really does cleanse our sins so that we can be in the presence of God. So just like you would go to the temple to have sacrifices made that atone for your sins, now we go to Jesus for the real sacrifice that really atones for our sins. And friends, finally, to bring this full circle, that means Jesus himself is the sign, the unchanging, immovable, and unshakable sign that God is with his people. God is with his people. You see, they had a physical temple structure. And by the time of Solomon's day, it was a solid structure. In Jesus' day, it was an impressively solid structure. But you know, they thought the Titanic was unsinkable too, until it sank. And they thought the temple was permanent too, until the Romans wiped it off the face of the earth. But you know what? You and I have something that is absolutely unshakable. The life that Jesus lived in your place and the death that Jesus died in your place Those are historical facts, and they cannot be undone. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished, it's been fulfilled, it is over, sin is paid for, and there is nothing that can undie Jesus or unlive Jesus. He lived the life I should have lived in my place. He died the death I should have died in my place. And that can never be taken away. It stands finished still. To this day. And that gives us great hope. That gives us great hope, just like it did for Old Testament Jews, but even better. It gives us short-term hope. No matter how I feel in my life right now, do I feel like God is with me? Do I feel his presence? Is totally irrelevant to the question of whether he's really with you. No matter how the circumstances of my life are going, whether I feel blessed, as we often like to say, or not blessed, because we don't like the word cursed. No matter how that goes, I can know that God is with me if I am a Christian, if I have banked everything on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
I can know that he's with me because God came to this earth, lived in my place, died in my place when I was at my worst, when I was still a sinner. God demonstrates his own love for us, the Bible says, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he can't be undyed. He can't be unsacrificed. It's happened and it stands having happened and affecting our relationship with God today. So there's tremendous hope. How do I know that God is with me? Because God became man, lived for me, and died for me, and that trumps everything going on in my life. But you know what? That also gives us great long-term hope. That gives us great long-term hope, which means the confidence that no matter what actually happens in my life, no matter what my life is about, and even if my difficult season of life that I may be in now becomes not just a season, but like a life. Even if my life in this earth never attains to the the hopes that I have for it, even if it's the worst it could possibly be, as is so often the case for the servants of Jesus Christ in this world, I have unshakable confidence that at the end of all time, in my ultimate eternal destiny, it will go well with me. It couldn't go better no matter what's happening now, I will be with God for all eternity in heaven, experiencing a joy the likes of which the sufferings of this present world, the Bible tells us, are not even worth comparing. How can I know that that's my future, no matter how bad, quote-unquote, my life feels to me? Because God became man, and that God-man lived the righteous life you and I should have lived, but couldn't. Died the sinner's death that he did not deserve, and we did. And because of that, we know God is with his people. As we wrap up the sermon this morning, we're not quite ready to wrap up the service because we as God's people need to respond to his word. And I don't know how the Lord and his spirit and his graciousness is moving in your heart today, but I want to encourage us to just create a little bit of space right now and reflect In fact, I'm going to give us a moment. uh, I want to explain what we're going to do for just a second. Give us a moment of a couple minutes of just silent prayer. In fact, I'd like to ask the worship team to come up right now, and they're just going to lead us into a time of prayer and reflection. We'll be able to respond in prayer and then be able to respond as a congregation in song. The first thing I'd like to encourage us to reflect on in just a moment is this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not even quite sure what it means to be a Christian, or you have not actively banked your entire present and eternity on Jesus Christ and trusted him for the redemption of your soul and the payment of your sins, then may I encourage you this morning that we don't get right with God by being good people. We don't get right with God by being even spiritual people. We don't get right with God by coming to his building and performing rituals. We get right with God through Jesus Christ. And so God is beckoning you to come as we have done visually as a church and lay your sins at the foot of the cross. Confess the sin of your self-reliance to him. Let God be God and bank your entire life and your eternity on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, in the next couple moments, if you are a Christian, you've already banked your eternity on Jesus as so many of us have. Are you forming your sense of whether God is with you based on your circumstances? based on your feelings, based on cultural and and national and international events or, or your method of tallying your prayer list? 
Spend a few moments in silent reflection and prayer and center your trust that God is with us, not on your perceptions and feelings, but on the unchanging fact that Jesus lived and died in our place and rose again to the very new life that he offers each of us. Could I ask you to just bow your heads for a moment? Just have some music playing softly, a few moments of silent reflection, silent prayer, and then as his people, we will sing his praises together.